Thomas Tyner. Buonasera. Hello, hello. I always have more time for you, but you want a 20-minute format to not stress people out with nine hours. <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's do a shorter one. No problem. Hello, everybody. You, you, Thomas, you showed everybody that you can do ultra marathon and still be absolutely interesting, keen, and comprehensive. Now, let's show them what happens during the counteroffensive, and let's do this in exactly twenty minutes. We're gonna Fix fail. It, We're gonna fail. We're gonna stay there for an hour. Well, well, well. Let's give it a go then. Um, we have lots of questions which came in from uh, our audience, as you know. And maybe, why don't you give us a wrap-up? Counter-offensive has started, everybody says so, but it's not qu quite full thrust yet. Tell us, how do you see it? Where do we stand? The thing is, it was always going to be in phases. You cannot just go and storm through. And right now we are in the first phase where Ukrainians are trying to wear down the Russians, attrit them, um, find gaps, push into the Russian lines to force the Russians to commit the reserves at the same time, strike those reserves with HIMARS and Excalibur, uh, push into the Russian lines because at some point there might be a gap where you can exploit and break through. But phase one is all about attrition and get the Russians to commit reserves where the Ukrainians want the reserves to be. And after that comes phase two. It sounds a lot like what I've read before from both your uh, threads, as well as what um, Ben Hodges um, noted down a little earlier today that the heavy brigades are not out there yet. The probing attacks continue. How many attack vectors do you think the Ukrainian armed forces with the troops and the force design um, can pursue? How do you see them? The Ukrainians have committed so far about, I, I think, less than 10% of the forces arrayed for the offensive. We have seen so far the 37th Marine Brigade, we have seen the 47th Mechanized Brigade, and we have seen that I think the 31st Mechanized Brigade that are part of the offensive formations being employed at the front to fight. And we have seen some units of the 4th Tank Brigade supporting the 37th Marine Brigade that's just three and a half brigades of 35 brigades that they have prepared for the offensive. That means 90% are still waiting for whatever will trigger their deployment to the front and whatever task they have has not yet the conditions to perform the tasks for which these other brigades are meant, have not yet met. So that's why we just see now 10% engaged and with more to come. And the other brigades, like the 68 Jäger Brigade, the 35th uh, Marine Brigade, the 142nd Reserve Brigade, and the 
129th uh, Territorial Defense Brigade, those brigades were actually not part of the offensive package. Those brigades were defending the sector where now the 31st Mechanized and 37th Marines are attacking. So the brigades there are supporting these two offensive brigades by covering their flanks and in the rear of the 37th and 31st clearing out the remaining Russians. So this is a very small amount of the overall Ukrainian force engaged at this moment. So the Jaeger and the TDF have essentially been performing the function of a following force to clear off and occupy and liberate. Um, but essentially, there's very little indication of a real thrust for a breach at the moment. We don't see significant penetration quite yet. No, the first phase is kind of like, um, there was always meant to be phases. And we can tell that the challengers haven't arrived, the martyrs haven't arrived, the strikers haven't arrived, the um, CV9040 from Sweden haven't arrived at the front. I saw today videos of the brigade with the martyr having training exercises somewhere in the north of Ukraine. So this brigade is not yet, yet even close to the front, they're just training. And I believe um, this phase will last a little longer it's pretty much the battle of second battle of El Alamein when the British were also attacking the Axis lines for weeks, basically to attrition them, to run them out of fuel and ammunition, and to um, reduce the number of troops. And then in the second phase comes the break in, and in the third phase, the exploitation of the break. So we are still far off, and it's going great. Only the 47th Mechanized Brigade has completely run into a disaster and everything else is going pretty decent because the 37th Marines is advancing every night, five, six kilometers and the losses are minimal. So, so far, so good. Let's hope it continues this way. So I don't have to ask the question anymore, what the hell was going on with the 47th Brigade because we covered this already. Um, and let me cover that, it a little bit yes, more please. in detail. <laughs> the 47th... It's, it's terrifying, isn't it? Is it? Isn't it terrifying what a failure of officership? Yes. The 47th Mechanized Brigade, I heard it called Motivated. So if that's the best you can tell about a brigade, it tells you that there are deficiencies in the quality or experience or education of the officers because motivation doesn't plan battles. And they went with some of the best equipment that the Ukrainians have. Basically, they drove into a minefield that was surrounded by Russians and ambushing them. And you can see from the videos that they, they themselves published that the Bradleys basically ran into mines and had to fire at the same time left and right into the tree lines where Russian anti-tank guided missile teams were firing at them. The troops had to cover behind the disabled Bradleys to get out of the machine gun fire from the tree lines. And this happens if there's zero artillery support from the Ukrainian side. So these guys were sent, these poor guys were sent into an attack 
with excellent equipment, but without artillery support, without air defense. And that's a failure of leadership because the 37 Brigade has attacked and is 20 times deeper in the Russian lines with having lost, with which having abandoned just two AMX-10, which they recovered. So their losses are minimal and 70% something of the Ukrainian losses were just the 47th mechanized in one badly planned, shoddily executed, not supported dash into a minefield. And I know people don't want that we talk about it because it's bad for Ukraine. But for me, the soldiers that were sent in this attack deserve better officers. And not later, but right now, because that brigade has some of the best equipment. And if you let such bad officers plan attacks, not only will all that equipment be lost, you're giving the Russians propaganda wins. They can milk for days and days. And you're killing hundreds of Ukrainians because the officers are just not competent. And for me, that's a sin. And I demand accountability. I would demand that from every military. And I really hope the Ukrainian military is looking very closely at what went wrong here. Because you cannot say it's the Russians that are so good. No, because the 37th and the 31st have none of such problems. Zero problems. Also because those brigades attack mostly in the night when the Western night vision and thermal cameras gives them a huge advantage over the Russians. And the 47th was like, let's just do a cavalry charge in broad daylight. We're not clearing the flanks. We're not having artillery support. We don't bring a single Stinger missile with us. We can do it. And I love the Ukrainians, but I can't understand that such officers are in charge of a brigade which got the best equipment. So, yeah, that's my opinion. And if some people are angry with me now, I'm sorry. But for me, as having, been a, having been a soldier, such officers are dangerous to the soldiers under their command. That's why I feel so vividly about this failed attack. That's the only failed attack of the Ukrainians in a week of offensive, but it's staggering how badly that failed. This whole thing, uh, the first time I saw indications of this, I thought of Ambrose Burnside in Fredericksburg, how to take an army which is absolutely capable of uh, circumnavigating the enemy and how to take an army and do a full frontal without sufficient support. Completely, absolutely insane. But there you go. Um, but then again, fortunately, Burnside also lost his command. And that is probably what will happen to this. Whoever the colonel was in charge or whoever designated this troop to go forward should definitely take a hike. So now, Starom Linivka. Everybody is looking currently at what exactly those other two units you talked about have been doing. Makar they took Storosheve, they took Makarivka. They're moving further down south. As you said, during the night, they're moving very effectively and they're taking one after another. The Russians felt compelled to target the dam um, uh, that is directly at Kliochove in order to flood part of Starodinivka. That has occurred. The four roads are there. How do you see that little detail 
developing. Is this, are they just exploiting it or how are they going to pursue that route down to, um, uh, say, the vector of Mariupol and Badiansk? Um, they, this is a bulge. Here, the Russian front bulges to the north, right? And this bulge prevents the Ukrainians from striking directly on the Russian ammunition depots and command centers and the logistics that pass from Mariupol over the road to Berdyansk. If they can squeeze in that bulge, then every Russian supply road coming from Russia through Mariupol is in range of HIMARS. And the Ukrainians have shown that up to a depth of 50, 60, 70 kilometers, they can send in drones because Russia has so, lost so many air defense systems that they can reconnoiter in that depth. And like a few days ago, when they spot a Russian convoy driving along a road, they drop some grenades on it. So that it stops to look how to fix the car and so on. And then come the HIMARS and the Russians lose trucks and howitzers and troops. So um, this is basically trying, the Ukrainians trying to push a bulge in the Russian line further south to get Russian logistics into range. The Russians understand this and are deploying reserves up there to stop the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians are really thankful because now they can strike Russian reserves that move around in the open and hit them with HIMARS and Excalibur. So the plan is working. The bonus at the same time as they're liberating villages, but the liberation of villages is not the main goal right now here. The main goal is to destroy the Russian army in the south of Ukraine. Once that is destroyed, everything is automatically liberated. And it's much easier to destroy the Russian army in one big swooping attack than to have to fight it for every single village. So right now, phase one, the Ukrainians are trying to get the last Russian logistic route into HIMARS range. And by doing so, force the Russians to deploy reserves, which Ukrainian artillery can strike. Important to note, there's two artillery brigades in that sector only targeting Russian troop concentration and Russian reserves, trying to destroy them before they come anywhere near 37th Marines, 31st Mechanized, 68 Jäger, 35 Marines, and 142nd Rifle Brigade. So this is a pretty decent, very well executed and surprisingly successful attack. Here you can see that these Russian trenches are not really obstacles because they all are undermanned. And if there's just four guys in a trench to cover an obstacle, that's not really an obstacle because those four guys can be killed with one artillery strike, one mortar strike, and then it's not an obstacle anymore. It's just a nuisance that you push us like these pyramids out of concrete. You just push aside. So they're pretty much doing very well in that direction. Um, yeah. And they have to open now a second phase of that kind to draw in more Russian reserves. The 47th failed to do it. So I think the Ukrainians will open now a different sector attack 
similar to this one. And I would bet it's at Svatovia because if they if the Ukrainians can reach Svatovia, then Stavrobilsk, the key Russian railway hub, is again in high Mars range and it's looking really bad for the Russians then there too with the logistics. Means the Russians will have also to move reserves to Swatovia and Ukraine artillery is going to strike them on the move while they deploy, while they get ready. And this way they wear down the Russian reserves for phase two when the best brigades will enter this fight. And we are an undetermined time away from that, but it's coming and the Russian military bloggers know it and are really, really despondent because it's going to be a crushing defeat. Well said. And I like the fact that you highlighted the Northeast because that's how you make them move. And making them move and keeping them under fire is the key strategy, isn't it? Because thus far, the Russians have been able to mass, trying to build their trenches. Yes, they are not effective. Uh, they've uh, put up defensive positions out of which they are, need to be forced to move. The Russian logistics are not very good, as we know. How quickly do you think they can deploy? And is that any? do they have a, any capacity to deploy with their trucks, given the fact that the rail um, connections they have are currently pretty much all of them threatened? I mean, if Ukraine moves further, as you said, in the south and closer to Mariupol, maybe just another 15, 20 kilometers, then there is no Russian rail traffic crossing over the south, right? There is none because the Ukrainians activated their partisans, like the Allies activated their partisans two days before D-Day in Normandy. And back then, in '44, the partisans blew up the railway bridges. And this night, Ukrainian partisans blew up railway bridges. So the Russians are getting not a single train through right now. And all the logistics are basically they cannot even go over the Kerch bridge with full trains. And then if they move ahead, right behind Kerch, they blew up a bridge, the partisans. If the Russians can fix that bridge, they can move up to Chongar. And after Chongar, the next bridge was blown up. So there's no chance to supply. The bridge coming in from Russia goes um, at south of Olenivka through a village, which is in Russian artillery range. You can't use that. And Starobilsk, if the Ukrainians reach Swatovia, it's also gone. So the Russian logistics situation is getting worse by the minute. Uh, means no more fuel, no more ammo. And the Russians moving up to the front are getting hammered. So um, this is very much, again, uh, Normandy. The battles to look at are Normandy 44 and the second battle of El Alamein. Why? In both of these battles the Allies had to overcome fortifications by the Germans, Italians, by the Axis forces. And both times the Allies had weeks, months to recon reconnoiter, explore, map, and prepare their offensive plans and then strike and attrition the enemy in a multi-day battle before they broke out. So these are some similar battles. And always remember, in Normandy, June 6th, they landed. July 25th, they were ready to break out. El Alamein, it took the Brits 12 days to break into the Axis line. But then in one afternoon, they completely crushed the Axis and destroyed more than half 
of the Axis forces. So the Ukrainians are now in the first phase where they try to attrition and try to draw in reserves. Um, the Russians are really, really <laughs> in trouble because the Ukrainians are way smarter. Later, we will speak about the Kakovka Dam because I'm laughing every time I look at the map. Okay, then we do the following. We extend this by two and a half minutes. I have a question from George, who's on the panel, and then we do a, a quick one on Novakovka. George. Hey, Thomas, uh, thanks for being on. Really quick, uh, I know you saw the Budinov uh, video, cryptic, he's not saying anything, but in the background you see a uh, Ukrainian and Japanese flag. Considering what laws the Japanese parliament just passed on them exporting uh, weapon systems, what could Japan send uh, Ukraine now that they could need? Japan is a leader in anti-ship missiles. Absolutely excellent anti-ship missiles because obviously Japan is always an island. The worst risk to Japan is the Chinese Navy. The easiest way to get rid of a navy is to hit it with very long-range, very precise, massed missile fire. So the Japanese have like an immense amount of anti-ship missiles, anti-ship radars, and so on. Uh, the Japanese will not deliver directly to Ukraine, but they might sell to the United States, which will then basically donate. And the Japanese have immense amount of ammunition. So um, like South Korea... The Japanese peace dividend, they never believed in that because, you know, they have neighbors like Russia, which keeps to this day parts of Japan occupied since World War II. They have the neighbor North Korea, they have China, um, the Japanese and the, also the uh, South Koreans have immense amount of ammunition that Ukraine could use. And they have production capacities, both countries, that obviously Ukraine can use. So there will be stuff coming in but it will not be now for the offensive because now the offensive is already underway and we will see um the next thing we will see is our challengers and cv 9040 in phase two and it's the striker and the Rossomax from poland in phase three the exploitation but japan is making strides to become a very valuable ally Very good. Thomas, what on earth would you want to do if you have a natural obstacle which allows you to block off an enemy to cross over um, easily? You would keep that, right? Yes, and the Russians are very... Okay, first thing, we're all very lucky that the Russians are so dumb. Continuously dumb. They... Kharkovka Reservoir is hundreds of kilometers of a lake that you cannot pass. It's too wide for a pontoon bridge. The Ukrainians planned to cross on two locations south of the Kek of the dam. They prepared an air assault regiment to cross over. They prepared a marine regiment to cross over in amphibious vehicles. They uh, have two pontoon regiments to build the bridges. They have special forces. The Russians blew the dam. And now that area is flooded and the Ukrainians cannot cross. This allowed the Russians to move forces from 
below the dam, the lower reaches of the Dnieper and the estuary of the Dnieper, allowed the Russians to move really good forces, excellent forces there, towards the center of the front, Melitopol, Tokmak, and that area. Because the Russians are correct, you cannot cross while that water stands. And because it's so flat, it will take a week or two more for this water to re um, reside and then basically allow to cross. And the Russian hope is that by then they will have stopped the Ukraine attack at Melitopol and Tokmak and that area and can remove and can move forces back. What the Russians didn't think through, this is a huge reservoir, right? And masses of vast water are running out of it. And between Zaporozhye and Nikopol, this lake was very shallow. And this is the part that has drained first. Because obviously that water runs from back there down and is away. And the Russians were like, yes, but then will be the Dnieper River that still blocks um, our flank here because there's a river. And the Russians never thought that the Ukrainians can just close all the dams upstream from Zaporozhye, Kanev Dam, the um, Dnieper Dam, the Kiev Dam. And the Ukrainians closed all these dams. And now from Zaporozhye to Nikopol, there's no river. It's just a flat land that in a few days will be dried out and you can just drive across into the rear of the Russians. And the Russians have built not one minefield, not one fortifications. They have almost no troops there. And they're slowly waking up that they basically allowed the Ukrainians a 100 kilometer wide gap between their units at the lower Dnepro and their units in Tokmak that the Ukrainians can just drive through. That's the level did of you, idiotic. Did you say rather than exploding a dam and a bridge and closing off a, a river delta, they just gave them 120 kilometers of crossover? Yes. South of Zaporozhye. That is smart, isn't it? Yeah, it's brilliant. It's it's like it's like in the history of extremely dumb military decisions. This ranks with the Russian Tsar's decision to move off the Pratsen Heights at Austerlitz, which was the next complete morose things the Russians did. And basically, um, south of Zaporozhye, you saw these images of uh, people finding World War II trenches with corpses and people finding guns from this 17th century in, this, in the sands because the Ukrainians just closed the, all the dams north of the Kakovka Reservoir, also to reduce the flow into Oleshki and these flooded areas. But as a side effect, there's no river coming down and the waters are flowing away. And there's some small lakes now, but this is a very flat landscape that was a swamp once. And now it's just a sandy, dried up territory. And the Ukrainians maybe will have to drop some gravel down, but you know, you can pass here in a few days. Um, I'm looking at the satellite images and I'm having fun thinking what the Russian high command is now having, what kind of panic they're going to have. 
Yeah, there's at least five uh, crossing vectors all along that former Dnipro River basin. There are even some very, very interesting uh, places uh, um, further down south. And it makes you wonder as to what the Russians have planned and where they might have to station the troops they thought they had just relieved and um, made available. They don't have troops. They don't have troops. It's, it's like the thing is just how fast this water runs off and dries out the riverbed, right? But um, if you look at old maps, Nikopol, at Nikopol, there were the bridges where you could cross the Dnieper until 1955. When the Germans had to retreat in, 19, in January 1944, they chose Nikopol because that was the easiest place to make pontoon bridges and get out of the trap from southern Ukraine to escape the Soviets. So, um, yeah, the, the Russians basically, in a short-sighted move, made sure the Ukrainians cannot cross in the south at Kherson and Oleski in that area over the river, it's for two, three weeks, but they opened up all kinds of new possibilities for the Ukrainians further north. So it was a very short-sighted move. And the real question now is, um, will it rain or will be the sun shining? Is it possible that this dries up very fast? Can the uh, dams further up the river hold all that water back to allow that to dry out quickly? But the Russians are going to have to move entire brigades out there to try to hold this. And I mean, this front line along the reservoir is extremely long. And you would need like divisions to hold it. So the Russians just put a giant, giant invitation to the Ukrainians in there to split them. I mean, you could cross at Nikopol and drive to Melitopol and there's nothing in between, no Russian unit, nothing. It's just like when you can, if you can manage to cross at Nikopol towards Melitopol, you will meet just maybe some Russian collaborators and a handful of police officers of the Russians and that is because everything else is further east or further south. Congratulations, Russian. You really, really played yourself here. And you can actually um, take the 80 kilometers from Novakarovka all the way up to what is Solotavanka. And from, <laughs> these 80 kilometers are narrow by comparison. You can literally bridge across whatever is still remaining of the Dnieper River. The remainder is dry. There's a couple of rivulets and inlets. They can't defend these 80 kilometers. They just can't. No, and they didn't build any fortifications. They didn't lay any minefields because they were so sure. This reservoir is so wide and there's so much water and this secures our flank. All we have to do is have some little patrols to make sure there's no infiltration from Ukrainian special forces. And yeah, this is the Prigozhin, the Russian war criminal, calls the Russian defense minister the Tuva degenerate because he's from Tuva and because Shoigu is so dumb. And like so often, Prigozhin is correct. And luckily, he is ostracized in Russia because he would make a much better defense minister. And luckily, Putin chose to stick with the dumb guy. And we are all lucky for that. All right, Thomas. So 30 minutes and uh, 23 seconds. Closing statement for today. And tomorrow we call it 2030. How about it? 
fine with me. Closing statement. We are in the first we are in the first phase of the offensive. The Ukrainians are doing pretty well where the 31st and 37th Marines are advancing. And the 47th failed. So that was a bit of a hiccup. The Ukrainians probably will try to go attack there again, hopefully with better luck and new officers. The Ukrainians also will probably open a third front. I, I might, my guess is at Swatovia because that would force the Russians to move their reserves very far away from the south. And then the Ukrainians will have a very close look at the um, effects of the Russians having blown up the dam if you, you can cross there and where you can cross there. And this phase will continue a little bit because the more the Ukrainians can attrition, the Russian reserves, and I'm speaking here not about soldiers, I speak here about tanks, artillery, mechanized formations that have been kept very much in the south out of HIMARS range until now, and now have to move to the front, the more the Ukrainians can attrition and destroy and whack these units, the easier the coming second phase will be. And in the second phase, we will see the best brigades break through the Russian lines, like just crush it and move through and open a gap. And after that, that will be a day or two. And after that, we will see the third phase where most of the formations for this offensive so I, I, I would assume like 20 brigades will go through this breach and just drive into the Russian rear towards Mariupol, towards Berdyansk, towards Melitopol, maybe even into the rear of Donetsk. And just like they did when they liberated Kupiansk, drive, drive, drive to cut off Russian units, to cut off Russian command posts from their units, to uh, sever Russian um, lines of communications, to encircle Russian units and make them surrender and so on. That will be phase three and it's coming and the Russians still will be routed. But for now, this is just a shaping and probing and attrition phase and everything goes according to plan except the 47th mechanized. So nobody should panic, nobody should worry. It's going much better than expected because the Ukrainians have more than 90% of the troops still waiting to engage the Russians and the Russians maybe have 20-30% left of troops that they can throw into the battle because they have already 70% if not more committed. So the Russians are running out of reserves trying to stop 10% of the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians still have a lot more to throw in and the Russians haven't. So patience and we wish the Ukrainians good luck. And tomorrow maybe we'll see even some more interesting developments because the Russians are really panicking about Ukrainian troop movements in northern Luhansk right now. So there could be something quite fun, exciting happening tomorrow for us and very tragic and problematic for the Russians, but this is how it should be. And I know we are approaching the 40 minute mark here. And <laughs> I'm sorry because you want a then 20 minute, but stay stay with me then. If we're approaching the 40 minute mark, stay with me because I want to make sure that everybody who's here now 
first and foremost, we're going to do this every day this week because Thomas will appraise what happens during the days and uh, goes uh, to address your questions in the audience. If you have questions, please reply to the invite. We're going to put up a new post later today. Reply with questions so we can address them and go through them. We've done the very same thing today in a certain format. Tomorrow we may even be faster, albeit I think we can always talk. Uh, but at the same time, we do this also for a purpose. We want to bring information awareness. And please, Halina Lukova, the secretary to the Kherson City Council, was here on Friday and has asked us officially to help generate donations for the humanitarian effort. And I know that Thomas uh, sees it the same way. If and when you can, and if you have any possibility, please give. Um, we have one donation link here at Maria Report, which goes directly to support exactly these purposes, just like our friends at uh, Ragnasas and others and the um, humanitarian support agencies in Ukraine have done. We would like to support the Helson City Administration in its efforts for the humanitarian aid because the people who are there still out on roofs because the water is still high enough and who are not being saved by the Russians need assistance, need humanitarian care. There's Ukrainian soldiers currently risking their lives day and night to travel over and save them whenever possible. So please consider giving to Mirror Report. So, but please, Thomas, we're at minute 43. <laughs> no, we're not. We're at uh, minute 40. You wanted to make this shorter so people can listen on their commute, but obviously, you know, this is a... Uh history is being made and it's there's so much history being made right now that there will be books written about each day each attack i see um john spencer is listening he's gonna write books about it i guarantee it and we are in the process of history being made and it's made all by ukrainians so we all should be very thankful that they fight for all of us and what we are doing in the West is donating money to help and paying our taxes. And a small fraction of those goes to help the Ukrainians. So give thanks to the brave Ukrainians, every one of you, and every day, please. Because they are dying as we speak right now here. So we are all safe and free. Whatever you can do to help, donation-wise, confronting people who talk nonsense about Ukraine, please go out there and do it because if we don't support them, we will have to fight the Russians and we have will have betrayed the Ukrainians and that we must not do. Thank you and we hear each other tomorrow again. Thank you, Thomas. Excellent. We did it in 41 minutes. <laughs> but no, you're Thomas, by the way, you're right. It's history in the making. 